This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio Um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences, the page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And this is a remotely recorded episode for reasons that are too boring for us to describe here, so we're going gremlins. to skip over them. Gremlins. There are gremlins, gremlins in the machine. Right. Gremlins. But we we did this early on in the pandemic, and we have to start with some kind of synchronization clap. And apparently we did a very good job. We did a good clap. So we can stop now. So we're just not going to record an episode because <laughs> we can't top that. We almost we never get right. So we're just going to So we hope you'll understand. But that's we it hope for you'll this understand. week. <laughs> this is the end. This is the end of our podcast. No, it's happy Valentine's Day, Eric Shaw Quinn. Best friend happy of mine. Happy Valentine's Day, Christopher Rice. <laughs> Um, do you have any Valentine's Day thoughts you would like to you start know, off the episode I still with? Have, I have the advice that I always have for Valentine's Day. If you're in a relationship, you know, great. I hope you and your partner do something nice for each other to remind them uh, that you love them. Because I think mm-hmm. taking the time to say you love somebody is is great. And if you're not in a relationship, this holiday doesn't involve you and you're completely off the hook. My greatest revelation was instead of mourning the fact that I was single on Valentine's Day was realizing that nobody had wished me a happy Chinese New Year or a Mm -hmm. joyous Hanukkah or a solemn and contemplative uh, Rosh Hashanah or whatever it's supposed to be or a whole Mm -hmm. host of other holidays um, because they don't involve me. It wasn't personal, mm-hmm. and it was right. like, oh, I'm off the hook. This holiday doesn't involve me. So instead mm-hmm. of it being happy fucking Valentine's Day, <laughs> the day to remember you've been forgotten. Um, <laughs> it was like, was oh, your Valentine's line? Day. I Wait, Mary did you hear are... that line somewhere else, the day to re- or no, is that an Eric Shaw Quinn? That's an Eric Shaw Quinn, the day to remember you've been <laughs> forgotten.
Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah, all right, I went right, through a lot right. long. I used to go through, I used to have the holiday tragedy period. It began shortly before Thanksgiving and it was over right after my birthday. So from like mid to early November through the end of March, I was depressed. Mm-hmm. Because there was, you know, like I didn't have a family to celebrate um, Thanksgiving with, except for the people that, you know, were genetically related to me. And, <laughs> I don't know family. if you've been to Thanksgiving at their house, but I don't recommend it. Um, <laughs> and then Christmas. Well, there was nobody to get a tree with, so I'm not going to get a tree. It's just uh-huh, whatever. Right, the New yeah. Year's, another year has gone by and still there's no one. And mm-hmm. then Valentine's Day. Oh, Jesus Christ. Complete tragedy. And then and my then, birthday, another year, repeat of New Year's, and then it was over, and then I was fine. But how did you get it? You don't you don't play that game anymore. I'm, I've got a front row seat to your life. So how did you get out of that that whole morose, depressive holiday spiral? I, I was part of it. Was like that. It was like that Valentine's Day revelation. It was about like there was a whole series of different things. It was like. I turned 40 and I still hadn't had a Christmas tree. And I was like, Mm. girl, you better get yourself a tree. (laughs) (laughs) We got the title of your memoir right there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it's time. Like it was like, and you know, everybody can see what I do with Christmas now. Like all of that was later in life stuff. Cause I didn't do that. Mm -hmm. I, I was waiting for the special one to share it with. And that didn't happen. You know, it, it occurred to me that, the fact that my life hadn't gone the way I had intended it to be did not mean that there was something wrong with my life. That's deep, friend. That's pretty deep. That's deep. And so it was like, oh, okay, well, why don't you try enjoying the life that you actually have mm-hmm. as opposed to being pissed off that it isn't a different life that you're not having? Like, what a waste but, of time and- that was. The way that's played out for you is that you've got a full-on commitment to the Christmas holiday in the form of your Christmas village that you make in your apartment every year, but you're off the hook for Valentine's Day. And, you know, that's the... And I have a full-on commitment to my life. Mm-hmm. Like, what you all see at um, Greater Christmasville time is the way I live my life every day. Indeed. Like, every aspect of my life is live just like Greater Christmasville. Live every day like it's Greater Christmasville. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't know what we're talking about with Greater Christmasville, it has its own Facebook page, Greater Christmasville. It is Eric's Home Christmas Village. And you may think you've seen a Christmas village in somebody's house before, but you haven't seen Greater Christmasville until you've seen Greater Christmasville. We started calling it Greater Christmasville because village just didn't cover it anymore. (laughs) Yeah. So, Christmas yeah. metropolis. Yeah, it's really it's all about um it's about enjoying your life. Like I just was like I'm not into not enjoying my life. I I will not but come it's up about with it, reasons. It's about enjoying the life that you're actually having. That's the thing you say all the time, not the fantasy right. version that you think well, you're entitled to. That's the only to. life you have to enjoy, you know. Right, like, yeah. If yeah. you're not enjoying that one, well then you're blowing it. Right. Um, Because as I say, you know, if if it was only about winning the Academy Award, they play you off after 30 seconds. If you didn't, if you didn't do everything that got you there, well, then you blew it. Absolutely. If you only enjoy the 30 seconds of winning, well, then that, you know, what a failure. 
And I'm going to try to make a segue out of this, which is always a doomed endeavor. But it's, I, I think one of the, not the joys of True Crime TV Club, but one of the reasons, I think the thing that keeps us coming back to True Crime TV Club is that it is again, mostly an again. analysis of people who have refused to enjoy their life. They have lashed out against their circumstances or and criminal. Some really serious um, really bad choices. Bad choices, the, the, bad choices. The, the true crime choice that gets made again and again, that mm -hmm. I just, I find myself, I not screaming at the television sometimes, but usually just saying like, hand, palms turned skyward is like, why not just get a divorce? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like the number of people who decide that they need to kill the other person as opposed to just getting a divorce really sort of keeps the true crime TV biz folks in business. Right. I, I was thinking about what we go through around the holidays when we're programming our podcast, this podcast, because whenever it's Christmas and New Year's, right, we go looking for true crime specials that are themed to those days. And they're actually not very many, and they're all the same story in different guises. They're all horrifying family massacres, right? Oh and my they're God, like, just. But when we went worst. looking for Valentine's Day themed, you know, relationship, oh my God, we were drowning in possibilities deadly love, fatal marriage, horrible boyfriends, shut up and get off yeah, my side of the bed. In point, this, the today's talk, the the show is called the series is called who the bleep did i marry because i guess they couldn't say fuck but uh yeah who the fuck did i marry and i have to say before we get it and we both did a different episode it's going to be one of those true crime tv clubs where we're presenting to each other my favorite murder style um i will say this is the best a most outrageous title sequence of any true crime special we've ever done it has like action figure wedding cake <laughs> it's like one I think punches the other or like shoves them off the cake or I don't know what it was like it's sort of what like am I watching the opening of Grace and Frankie gone wrong oh well describe the opening of Grace and Frankie for those of us who haven't seen it the opening it. of Grace and Frankie is I think it's Dolly Parton singing that song about stuck in the middle with you and mm -hmm. uh, somebody who is very Dolly Parton-y um, and it's uh, two couples on top of a wedding cake, uh, destroying the cake. Wow! It's the it's the figures, <laughs> you know, the the little figures <laughs> destroying. So the yeah, cake. so it's like that. Yeah, totally. So um, I did an episode. I did this. First of all, we had a process for how we divided up no, what we, we were going to do. Christopher <laughs> found this and found the episode he wanted to do, and then he. Bamboozled me into doing it, and I had to find an episode I wanted to do. That was the process. That was part of now, the process. What were you going to say was the process, Christopher? The other part of the process was that so we're on. This is uh, these episodes are streamable. Excuse me on Discovery Plus if you're a subscriber, um, or ID, or yeah, ID the ID channel. I think right. maybe if you're not, which is streamable for right. free. I think with commercials, we like to give people other options. But you can yeah. find them on the internet. Is really but, oh my god, Discovery Plus. Internet. We're not getting paid for this, but it's the best investment ever. Yeah, it's it's totally a right off for us. Home improvement, cooking, true crime, bad relationships, paranormal. Like yeah, it, it is just absolutely. It is soup for nuts. 
Okay, and so the, the process, though, is that Discovery Plus likes to have the shortest one-sentence descriptions of their, their episodes possible. Right. So Eric was going through, and he was having to decode the buzzwords because there's so little specifics about the story of the episode. So I think, what was the one that you ultimately went with? Underground of Filth? <laughs> Yeah, that was what I was. That was what I was. You got it open on, on your computer. What have you? Okay, read it. Yeah, totally. What do you have? Amber finds an underworld of filth when she moves to Utah. <laughs> Utah, an underworld of filth in Utah, the Mormon and I was state. Like, oh, we have to know what that is. Yeah, we have to know what that is. So, um, you did an episode called Prayer and Prophet, which I think is season four, episode two. And I did an episode called Strange Bedfellows, which I think is season two. And I don't have the episode number in front of me, but Strange Bedfellows. So our standard disclaimer here on True Crime TV Club is that if you would like to watch ahead, if you would like to get extra credit, that's fine. And these are only 20 minutes long, so it's easy. Right. It's an easy investment. However... Our job here at True Crime TV Club is to serve them up in such steaming detail that you will feel like you've watched it, even though you have just listened to two bitches talk about it, namely Yeah, the keyword is steaming. Steaming, steaming. Okay, so are we ready to sort of get into the, the nitty-gritty here, or do you have more, um, more preliminary thoughts that you would like to share? And I'm going to warn you, I, I'm, I'm going to surprise you. I did a thing. I always do this with some of the... Well, I don't always do it. I sometimes do it. Okay, whatever. I'm just going to out with it. I did some research, some additional research on the story in my episode. You did follow-up. I did well, follow-up. I mean... You picked this entire series because yes. you wanted to do that story. And I have to say, it's pretty juicy. It is. Like, there's is a, a lot story. to unpack there. I don't know how you would cover it in 20 minutes except for just the headlines. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I could see how the uh, background research would really enhance your understanding of um, not only the um, – the, uh, the story that you're going to tell, but probably the rise of Chris Christie in the political world. Uh, yes, indeed. And also, though, I want to make a guess of what the underground of filth in yours turned out to be. And I have no, I'm going to say it is uh, webcam porn. And you can tell me when we get there. You don't have to tell me now. It was a webcam, Utah <laughs> webcam porn ring. Although I don't regard any porn as filth. I don't write synopsis for Discovery Plus. Sex work is work, whatever. But the Discovery Plus puritanical copywriters may not believe that uh, the way I do. So I see. Well, yes, I, I get. So you're trying to, yeah, which was what we were decoding. Like there was, yes. there was a whole one, there was one's abusive spouse. Um, mm hmm. What was the the um, deviant ways? Deviant, deviant ways. So either deviant, cheating yeah. or gay. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, there was one other one that was, uh, I think it was uh, swindling. It was. Uh, yeah, which was sort of like okay, whatever, swindling. But they had to describe it all these elaborate other ways so that you didn't, you know, totally get it. But. Like I say, they're only 20 minutes long, so these were chosen because it was pretty direct and to the point. Excellent. Well, I cannot wait to find out about the underground of filth.
Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? All right, Eric Shaw Quinn, you're going first. So I got to hear about this underground filth. Profit, and it's prayer the, not, and profit. It's, it's not the kind of profit that you have to pay taxes on. Mm. It's it's the the pH kind of profit. Okay, okay. So yeah, but you know it's Utah. So what do we think of when we think of Utah? We think of those crazy Mormons. Yeah, and uh, how do you feel about the Mormons, Eric Sharkwin? Well, you know, I'm still not over them financing a campaign in California to take away my civil rights. So I don't mm-hmm. care much for that particular uh, religious order. Although I'm not a big fan of organized religion in general. I think it is mm-hmm. responsible for most of the evil in the world today. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, still not. They have not done anything to uh, to uh, get my forgiveness. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. I don't carry mm-hmm. it around, but uh, yeah, I I I'm still kind of pissed off about that, and I have not heard an apology. No, they have not apologized. I don't no. think the Mormon Church has apologized to gay people, and they really fucking should, because they fucking owe mm-hmm. us an apology for being such they do. jerks. I wanted mm-hmm. to get, I wanted to um, do a ballot initiative to um, say that Mormons couldn't get married in the mm-hmm. state of California to see how they would like it. Yeah, exactly. Because that actually is a choice, being a Mormon. <laughs> Absolutely. So with it's that intro, genetic. 
It's not. There's no dispute. It is totally a choice. So yeah. So fuck them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Although I know actually a lot of Mormon people who I quite like. So well, the, the actual Mormons themselves aren't all terrible. It's just that organized I, religion I don't like. I don't want to hear that. I remember back when the gay marriage debate was raging and I didn't want to hear the not all Christians thing from Christians on my Facebook page. I'm like, that's fine. Let me know what work you're doing to make your church right. less publicly Absolutely. homophobic. Like, I don't care. Like, don't bring it to my doorstep. I'm sticking up for my community here and my civil right. rights. And, you and know, if you're actually sticking up yeah. for my community, I would like to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've totally. told, um, yeah, I've told evangelicals in my life, you know, fine. You want me, you want to get back on good terms with me, then go out there and do the work. March mm -hmm. with P flag and stand up right. for gay rights in a public and knowable way and argue with your church. And a you know. financial way, because all of that was about money. That was an enormous yes. amount of money the Mormon Church pumped into California for a ballot initiative. You know, yeah, absolutely. Right. It's all to take away our civil rights. Money. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was part of the reason we picked it because we. It seemed like since it was going to be an underground of filth, and they used the word profit with a ph, we thought, yes. okay, well, good. It's going to be them. Let's see. And what okay. do you know? What do you know? That's kind of how it goes. So. My Ooh. first take on this was like, it it was like uh, Desperate Housewives. There was this narrator and this chirpy little music, and they were talking mm -hmm. about it. And it was like, you know, Amber Lynn didn't know what she was getting into. Would she, you know, mm -hmm. like it was really, it was bizarre. It was this the story of, let's see, where are my notes? Um, it was the story of... Um, Dawn Amber, Amber Dawn Lee. I think that's right. Let me see. Ooh, Let's see here. Amber Dawn Lee. Amber Dawn Lee. Amber Dawn Lee was born the um, the daughter of some hippies, some crazed mm. hippies who found religion and mm. became increasingly kind of crazy uh, with mm. it. And they became, uh, they joined the uh, Latter-day Saints. Okay. And uh, her father was having a particularly hard time, and uh, they joined this particular sect of Mormonism called the Zion Society and oh moved to Ogden, Utah. But prior to that, Amber had been, because her father couldn't manage to keep a job, um, but he couldn't mm -hmm. find time to, you know, pursue this religious bent. Mm -hmm. um, so they were living in the car. They were living in tents. They were eating out of dumpsters. Like it was a, it was bad. Oh, for my. Them. Yeah. Right. So they moved to this little community in a cul-de-sac in Ogden, Utah. And it was run by um, the, uh, the head, the prophet Arvin Shreves. And he was a former landscape architect, so it was a beautiful little community. And uh, mm -hmm. two or three little houses, and they were all right together there in this little cul-de-sac in Ogden, Utah. And so she was really delighted. It seemed like she had been delivered into this paradise, this beautiful, picture-perfect life mm. um, that, uh, you know, everything looked good on the outside. And so she thought she had really... Gotten there. Well, the first thing they did was separate the children from the oh, parents. Dear. Oh, which dear. Which is always, seems like mm. a bad sign to me. Um, mm -hmm. And she started being trained by um, 
the the head uh, sister wife whose name was Sharon Kath. Mm-hmm. She was Amber, she was Arvin's uh, head wife, but he had a bunch. Apparently, mm-hmm. they were polygamous, and uh, she immediately began training Amber and all the other girls in the community uh, to one day be Arvin's sister wife. Oh dear. So uh, yeah, it would seem they were kind of they were never very specific about the age, but it looks like Amber was about twelve. Oh dear. Oh, and no. It was, yeah. And the training was really pretty. I think the, the river of filth, the training was pretty specific. Were there. And it involved them um, wearing and modeling uh, lingerie. Oh, how spiritual. Yeah. Um, yeah. Three-year-olds. Three-year-olds in lingerie. Oh, my God. God, yeah. oh my yeah. God, this is a, beyond filth. This is an underground. And of- they would, um, people would come and purchase the lingerie and the girls would come out modeling it to uh, to buy the lingerie. That was part of the way in which uh, the oh Zion Society supported itself because, you know, that's as God intended. Um, uh, I guess so. Jesus yeah. Christ. Holy uh, Maroni. They were also uh, involved in playing uh, sex games. One of them called Rape in the Dark, um, for instance. What? Where they Seriously? Would, where they That's would, actually where the they name would of it? play act and role play um, sex, light, sex behavior with each other. The girls were encouraged to practice French kissing on each other and to, you know, become proficient so that when it was their turn to serve as the prophet— who was like this 60-year-old retired landscape architect, Arvin. <laughs> um, oh, my God. They would be, you know, ready to roll. Oh, so, God. So uh, Dawn tried to, like, and uh, Amber found that they wouldn't they wouldn't let her see her parents. Like, they were only two houses away, and they wouldn't let her go there. No, it's not on your schedule today to see your parents. So it was pretty much like being held against her will, but Amber tried to go along and be a good girl and, you know, do what she was being asked to do because prior to that, they were living in the car and eating out of dumpsters. So she didn't want to go back to that. Yeah. Right. But she didn't want to, you know, she didn't really like what they were asking her to do. And at one point her father came over to try and, um, to try and get his daughter and they wouldn't let her out of the house. And he got into this huge fight with the, um, the prophet and was dragged away by other men and the, uh, in the community. So wait, let me stop you. This is Amber's father who has agreed to live on this commune, but been separated from his daughter or is the father out of the picture and trying to get her out of this area? So yes, it's, um, it is her father who, uh, has come to live on the commune, but then discovered what the conditions of the commune were. And he's pretty upset about it. So, the other men drag him away, but it's not enough. And he shows up with the family in the family car, packed and ready to leave, demanding that they bring Amber out to the car. Mm-hmm. And um, Amber lets them go. Well, wait a minute. Amber she's let being, her parents she's go? Being, she's being encouraged oh. to go with them, but Amber doesn't want to go back to that life that they were living. Oh. So she mm-hmm. lets them go. God. Um, and... Waves stands with the community and waves goodbye as the parents drive out of the picture, which, you know, wasn't a good decision, but she was 12 or some age like that. She was young. So, you know, it was a bad decision, but she wanted 
she liked eating three meals a day. And so that had not been part of her life before. So it's, it was pretty, yeah, like that was the sort of choice. So the parents leave without her. Which I think is a that's a hell of a choice. I um, she's twelve years old. Take her, grab her, take her. I, you know, like, well they oh don't want to, but they they leave without her because she won't come with <sighs> them. Oh my god! So then, you know, shortly thereafter, she is um, designated to be the next sister wife, and um, Arvin is married to her in a ceremony. <sighs> in the community and begins, you know, raping her on a regular basis, Mm -hmm. um, which she doesn't like and lives through. Um, But uh, she uh, doesn't have any options and she doesn't have any contact with her parents. She doesn't know where they are or what they're up to or, you know, what's happening. And she's still 12 years old. She's still that age, right? She, yeah, you know, She's still a young woman, God. very young woman. Hideous. So then um, one day, suddenly, out of nowhere, the, um, the authorities come. And they say they are there to get Amber and return her to her family. Her family has apparently filed some kind of official complaint with child mm. services. And so child services comes and says... They want their daughter back, and they uh, the the community, the Zion Society, complies immediately. They don't offer any resistance. Absolutely, mm. you know, okay. if her parents want their want her, then she should absolutely be with her parents. So they take her. Um, but by the time they get her back to New Mexico, which is where they filed the complaint, her parents they don't know where her parents are anymore. Oh, so Amber is God. then turned into a foster in put into the foster care system, which is still better than the life she had before. My God. But it's also alerted the authorities. So the authorities um, masquerade Mm -hmm. as a couple who are looking to buy some lingerie and schedule a show with the Zionist Mm -hmm. community and then arrest everybody. And all the children are taken away. And I assume that it began because of Amber's right. parents filing the complaint. Although I was going to say, did never Amber, back in the picture again. No, she was did not Amber tell the authorities? Did Amber tell the authorities everything that happened to her after no, she, Amber before she was tell put anybody. in the fosters? Oh, wow. Okay. So the parents, so the parents knew anybody. about the lingerie. Did the parents know when I they don't were there? Know. Wow. I don't know. Yeah. This sounds like... The parents are yeah, out of ahead. the picture... Sorry. The parents are Mm -hmm. out of the picture and never come back in. Amber is in the foster system, and she eventually comes clean about what happened to her. But I think it's after the fact with the the bus. She is not a participant. She's already a foster child by then and Mm -hmm. lost in the system. And um, uh, she's – and the the bust happens, I think, because of the, the Amber thing. But even that's not clear. Um, mm-hmm. It puts the it, but it certainly brought them to their attention, to child services' right. attention, and they bust them. And uh, Arvin goes to prison, and uh, Amber Excellent. goes on and leads her life. She lives through foster care. She is now uh, married and uh, doing better, and is uh, according to the show, she is now. I think trying to produce a documentary. She's trying to get in touch with the other girls 
who were in the Zion Society good, and good. Uh, yeah. the other survivors and produce some survivors. kind of documentary to do with this. I don't know when this was filmed, so I don't know. She's right. worth looking up. I didn't do any follow-up research because... Well, and uh, uh, was this what you were expecting? It's not what I was expecting based on the no. underground of Phil's line. Yeah. No, it was... I wouldn't... That's That seems a little glib for me right. to call this an yeah. underground of filth. This was slavery and child abuse yeah. and... Like it was Rape. worse yeah. than an underground of filth. Horrible. Underground of filth sounds like some puritanical dismissal of, yeah, as you thought, cam models or whatever. Right. And this was or wife swapping. So you know. much worse than that. This was. I, I, I mean, we picked this, this, this series because it was supposed to be bad marriages. Like uh, th- this is a, this is a sex crime. This is rape. This is child yeah. rape. Is what this is. So who yeah, the well, bleep did I marry? Rape. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Even if she's consented, you don't get to consent yeah. when you're 12. It also sounds like it warrants more than 22 minutes because I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. You didn't write the episode. But, like, I want to know, did Amber – what Amber was going through when she was taken by the authorities again? Did she tell them what had happened to her? Did she give them information? It sounds like she probably did if they were able she to did know about the lingerie. But she did yeah. right away. Amber didn't tell yeah. anybody for a while. She – yeah. She didn't have anybody to tell and she was there were no parents. She was just taken to imagine you're 12 years old, you're being raped by this crazy old man, you're taken to New Mexico, your parents aren't even there. That's and the then part you're turned over like, to strangers, oh. who would you tell? Mhm. And so yeah. she doesn't. But because this this thing happened, we hear about this again and again and it's horrible that the child on some level believes it's their fault, that what happened to them is their fault. And so they don't want to tell people about it because they think they will be blamed for it and get in trouble with it, probably because that behavior mimics what their abuser has been doing to them, you know, finding ways to coerce well, them, manipulate and I them. I don't know that I don't see what her parents were doing to her in the first place as a form of abuse. I agree. And not showing up alone after making that complaint and getting her, yeah, like Jesus, but yeah. Like the fact that they were not traceable kind of speaks to the sketchy nature of who her parents actually were. Mm-hmm. They weren't very clear about it, but yeah, it wasn't that he couldn't get a job. It was that he couldn't keep a job. I see. Well, it sounds like drugs. Sounds like serious I, drug I abuse. I assume so, or some sort of um, his need for this really extreme religious explanations of mm-hmm. life also right. s- may speak to some sort of mental condition. I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I, again, they didn't really pursue it because, no. as you pointed out, and it's but, only 20 minutes. But, but yeah, we, so she married are, um, Arvin Shreves. Right. I, I, I think that um, this is a good uh, preview of something that we've talked about doing going forward on the podcast, which is a redo, a uh, true crime redo, because we had an experience recently where – um, I can't remember. Oh, I think it was I went off and did it. We watched um, an episode that covered the murder of a man named Henry Rios in Miami. And uh, he was a secretly gay man who was murdered at a hookup site by someone who was planning right. to rob him or blackmail him. I, for some reason, wanted to watch. We had some questions about how the marriage was handled and how the wife was covered. So I went and watched another depiction of the same case on another true crime series that completely straight washed him, that showed him as being in a strip club. I mean, and so I, I bring that up not to get going on that 
that tangent again, but because right. we are, the way we do this, we are at the mercy of these shows and we are interested in doing more compare and contrast between the various coverage to find out what we may not have been told about the real story. And right, I'm because they are framing are the story and you're seeing it in the way they want you to. So it is very much a controlled version of the story. Indeed. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So the episode that I did, also of Who the Bleep Did I Marry, was called Strange Bedfellows. And as you mentioned earlier, I picked it because it's a well-known case, and it is the case of New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy. Now, if you don't know that name offhand, you probably didn't watch the news in the last, uh, tw- I don't know, 10 or 15 years. I think this was yeah. uh, this was a case that blew up in 2004. So... Um, we are it was quite the case. Woman. It was quite. It crossed a lot right. of different lines for news coverage, because he was the governor. It was a pretty public sort of like you think the Andrew Cuomo thing was big. This was big, but this was big kind of for a different reason, and we'll get into why that is. And it was arriving at a really strange time around these issues, a kind of transitional time. But so we were introduced to Dina Matos. It's fall of 1995, and she is a 29-year-old who's working in PR for a local hospital in the area of New Jersey where she lives, and she is making herself known in political circles. Right. She meets the newly single Jim McGreevy. Um, he also has political ambitions and is pretty well known in the community. She's into him. He shows her a lot of interest, but his personal life is in turmoil. His wife has just taken off abruptly and flown back to her native British Columbia, as the voiceover tells us. I just love something about the term native British Columbia. It makes that is Columbia really funny. Very far away. Yeah, <laughs> like, so right? like Timbuktu. She's gone back to right. her tribe outside of Timbuktu. Like British right. Columbia, that's like saying uh, her native Massachusetts or whatever. I just right. think it's like it's like one of the contiguous states of. Canada is so much a part of our culture that I don't re- right. I almost don't see it as a separate country. So this was for me a little bit of foreshadowing about how much romance was actually in store for these two. One day an aide from his office called to schedule a dinner, which was like, okay, that's hot. Um But on that dinner, they end up spending four or five hours together, and suddenly they're dating exclusively. In one of those really quick transitions that happens in a 22-minute episode, they're dating exclusively. And by 1997— There wasn't even time for a montage. No. (laughs) And by 1997, he decides to run for the governor of New Jersey. Uh, we're introduced to Carol Are they McKinney, still at dinner? <laughs> right. At dinner, he decides to run for the governor of New Jersey. 
So we meet uh, Dina's friend, Carol McKinney, and we meet Dina's brother, Paul. And they're really the only two talking heads that they have time for in this less than half hour of television. Because Dina and Jim are sure not in this. In January of 2000, he proposes and she accepts. And eight months later, they're married. Six months later, she learns she's pregnant. And then the narrator tells us, but in four short years, the tides will turn. <laughs> and I, maybe it's because I'm not married and never have been. Four years seems like a long time in the that context like of a, a relationship. seems like a very long time. My God, I haven't been in a relationship yeah. longer than six weeks in my entire life. <laughs> so, okay. So we jump forward to August 9th, 2004. Dina is running errands when she gets a call from her husband asking her when she'll be home. Never a good thing. She has a knot in her stomach, she says. He sits her down, and he tells her he's being blackmailed. And then the show does that thing that you hate, which is they flash backwards in time after having built up all the suspense around this event, which when you only have 22 minutes is like, really? Do you really have the time to do this? Yeah, that's right. Um, 45 seconds earlier. (laughs) Basically, what they, they go back to the fact, so 2004, he's actually... I don't remember. This gets into his political back. I think what they're trying to make the case for here is that there were actually some fundamentals to this marriage that were working pretty well. On November 3rd, it was the last day of um, Jim's big rally before the election. Dina was seven months pregnant and bleeding. She had to check herself into the hospital because she was in premature labor. So he suspended his campaign to be at her side while she remained on bed rest. Um, and he turned the hospital into campaign headquarters, so I'm not sure how suspended that campaign was. Right, that doesn't seem yeah. completely suspended, but whatever. Still, it's good for him to be with her. On November 7th, he wins in a landslide. He's lost once before. He ran for governor and lost. This time he wins. He staffs up his campaign, and he names a young Israeli man named Golan Sapel as his national security advisor. So... Yes, the governor of New Jersey apparently has a national security advisor, which I didn't know. Um, Maybe every governor does? I would think probably it's going to be your more high-profile states. Yeah. like (laughs) You don't think Montana has one? They have a border with Canada. (laughs) Yeah, they might actually have one. I'm thinking like Mississippi. Like they don't even even believe that there are other countries. (laughs) All right. So, but okay, so this guy, Golan Sapel, not only is like, wow, he's going to be national security advisor, he has no experience in international security. He's in public relations. Also, he's not American, which means he could not get the proper security clearances to hold this position effectively. He's not even an American, but that's just ridiculous. He's Israeli, which is like, okay, why is Jim so invested in this young man's political future is the question hanging over this. Um, So by 2002, again, we flash backwards from that phone call to Dina asking her to come home. We're still in the recent past from there. Um, She's noticing that Jim is very secretive and he will not let her see his schedule at all. The schedule, his daily schedule stays on his computer and he won't really talk to her about it. And whenever his ex-wife calls, he goes into the other room to take the call, which she thinks is odd. Yeah. Then his ex-wife and the and she, by her own accounts, Dina, is trying to actively involve the daughter in their lives. Not the ex-wife, but can the daughter come and visit? Can she come and see us for the holidays? And Jim's like, no, 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 no. Then out of the blue, they show up on their doorstep. 
the ex-wife and the daughter. And when she shows up, the, the ex-wife, the ex-wife, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> um, and she is wearing their wedding ring. So Dina, in this moment, is thinking, my husband is having an affair with his ex-wife. That's what the secrecy is all about. Around this time, he says, well, how would you feel if I didn't run for a second term? You know, being governor is really hard. It's just sort of like the Sarah Palin effect. It's, I, there's actual work to do, and it's not just all fun and games. And my staffers uh -huh. are having scandals, and they're, they're, there's a lot of infighting. And she's thinking again, by her own account, and her accounts will later be called into question by right. my follow-up research. Oh, wow, this may be, this is a relief, and this is maybe exactly what our marriage needs. Okay, so we're back to August 9th, 2004, the big cliffhanger moment from earlier. He calls her home, and he says he's being blackmailed. And she says, by who? And he says, Golan Sapel, the young Israeli man that he made the completely unqualified national security advisor is claiming sexual harassment and he says he's gonna file a lawsuit unless he gets paid something like, it was some insane figure, like $30 million. Like it was just completely unworkable. Like it was not something you could deliver in a in a satchel at 2 a.m. in the morning to a postal box, right? So- just, Yeah, like what is he even thinking? So here's where things get really governory. okay? So Dina says, Gubernatorial. Why would this man say this? <laughs> Gubernatorial. I like governory. It's because this is stupider. Yeah. Dina, Dina says to her husband, um, why is he saying this? And Jim says, and this is a quote, and I really thought I actually turned on the subtitles to make sure I was not mishearing what, what was being said. We had a relationship that was sexual, but non-sexual. And I was like, <laughs> What? <laughs> Wait, 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 what? Um, Dina says Jim doesn't console her, that he immediately starts talking about his political future. He gives her no chance to absorb that he was sleeping with another man. So she claims, he tells her, I'm having a press conference the next day. I need you to be there and be by my side. And she agrees. And they have a heart to heart. And he says, I'm confused about my sexuality. I might be gay. I'm not really sure. And she says, why did you marry me? A question I think any wife in that position would, would ask. And he said, I really loved you and I really wanted to build a life with you. And, and, and you know, so that's why. And so the next day, right before the press conference, they're all backstage. He walks in. Again, this is all Dina's version. He hands her a copy of his speech and she reads it. And in it, he has the words that he would later say on live television, I am a gay American. So the confusion cleared up really quickly between the night before. He became and, less and then, confused. He became far less confused. So he, and she is, if you, if this is true, the footage of that press conference takes on a whole new dimension because she is standing there hearing all this shit for the first time. She can't run. She can't get away. Or, I mean, she could, but she would cause a spectacle if she did. She's agreed but to be But wouldn't there. that have been great? Oh, Yes. And he also resigns without having decided that with her, talking through that with her first. Wow. And that, that's when Dina says she realizes she was married for political gain. They do not divorce right away, interestingly enough. They leave the governor's mansion in 2004, and the divorce proceedings don't start until two years later, which is like, your husband has announced on live television that he is a gay American. You are staying, why? Possibly for the child. There is a child involved. Right. Um, 
the the divorce is not finalized until August of 2008, which is like, I don't know if that's normal or not. I've never been through a divorce. My parents didn't get divorced. Wait, he announced that he was gay in 2004 and they didn't divorce until 2008? The, the divorce proceedings were not finalized. It went into a really brutal, protracted court battle, but it started two years after 2004. So 2004, 2000, 2006, yes. She didn't start divorce proceedings until 06. And again, as with your episode, it's like, what has been excerpted, what has been edited out of this 22 minutes? There is more story here. Golan Sapel returns to Israel, never files his lawsuit. The blackmail claims have never been substantiated on top of that. We don't actually know if Golan was blackmailing Jim. It's just Jim who says he was being blackmailed. Well, um, but the scheme wasn't going to work if he was going to announce that he was gay to the national media. That kind of uh -huh. takes the wind out of the blackmail sales. Yeah. So, um, and Golan also says he never had any kind of sexual relationship with Jim either. And he has returned to Israel and, you know, he denies any sort of affair or whatever. Jim left politics to become an Episcopal priest. He lives with a male partner today, and he is a spiritual counselor to female prison inmates. Okay? To, uh, Dina lives in a small town and works for a healthcare nonprofit. So that's where the special ends. But the reason I picked this is because I remembered a headline that circulated a few years back that suggested that Dina was not being truthful and her account of her marriage with Jim McGreevy. And I, sure enough, was able to find that. Now, I will say the original source for it was yeah. an interview with the New York Post. And the New York Post is a publication oh. that should be looked at yes. uh, with suspicious eyes. But a former driver and aide to New Jersey <laughs> Governor should be Jim corroborated. McGreevy, it shouldn't be taken as, war, as, the, as the actual word on any exactly. topic. March 16th, 2008. Okay, and so... Basically, I'll summarize this before I start to read the details. My birthday. Uh, yes. March. How old were you on 2008? Will you disclose? I was 115 years old <laughs> in 2008. 150 years old. Um, a former driver and aide to former New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy yesterday made the bombshell claim that Dina Matos McGreevy must have always known her husband was gay because he was the other man in bed with them. In an explosive interview with The Post, the McGreevy's self-professed man in the middle, Teddy Peterson, P-E-D-E-R-S-E-N, gave explicit details of three-way sex romps that he claimed to have had with the now-divorcing duo, starting during their courtship and continuing into their marriage. Peterson, who said he had already spilled the beans on the menage a trois arrangement under oath in a deposition for the court's a uh, couple's divorce battle hinted that he thinks his presence was required to get Jim's motor running for Dina. Matos McGreevy's basic argument in her divorce war with the former government is that he covered up his homosexuality and tricked her into a loveless marriage. Peterson, who is named in Matos McGreevy's court papers, agreed to talk about the alleged unconventional relationship after Dina sounded off to the media last week about Elliot Spitzer's sex scandal. Remember that? Yes. Elliot Spitzer, attorney general, uh, busted for sleeping with sex workers, goes down in scandal. She apparently decided to get high and mighty about the issues involved. Peterson was not having it, given he knew the real uh, claimed to know the real story of what went on in their marriage. It's right. frustrating to hear her call Governor Spitzer, not attorney general, but the 
the allegations were, I think, while he was attorney general. It's frustrating to hear her call Governor Spitzer a hypocrite while she's out there being as dishonest as anyone could be about her own life. She's framed herself as a victim, yet she was a willing participant. She had complete control over what happened in her relationship. She was there. She knew what was happening. She made the moves. We all did. It's disgusting to watch her play the victim card. But... In later interviews, Peterson really makes it clear that, like, he was only sleeping with Dina. Like, he wants, even though he's claiming this is evidence that, you know, Jim McGreevy, she should have known Jim McGreevy was gay. Jim McGreevy was apparently watching her with Dina. And he's like, oh, no, I didn't, I didn't touch Jim. I mean, I was just about her. So his self-righteous pose <laughs> gets a little tarnished in my book. Um yeah, that's but, that's a different. That's uh, oh, okay. Well, just so that we're clear. Yeah, I. Um, it's one thing to be a hypocrite. It's another thing for people to think you're gay. Uh, I, and that was like, uh, that's what the, that was the weird time aspect of this. Like, it was not. We were still fighting the gay marriage fight. Like, it was not as as accepted as it is now to come out as gay. So it was kind of amazing that he did it. But at the same time, it's like oh God, it's coming in this package. Like you cheated on your wife. You had an affair with a staffer. Like it, it's, this is essentially, I, I, the reaction to some of it was similar to when Kevin Spacey tried to defend himself against horrible sex crime allegations by coming out and saying, you know, like I'm finally going to come out now after years of being secretive about it. And it's like, oh, oh really, please don't. Please don't join our team in this moment when you need damage <laughs> control. Oh God, like, oh God. So- that's what I remember about the case, but you know, I, I don't know how if I walked away feeling really excited about this show. Like I don't know <laughs> I want to do episodes of this series again. What did you think? I you know, it wasn't like I said, it I the tone of it was ironic. I don't know how your mm -hmm. episode played out, but it had a very chirpy sort of quality. I was like, yeah. this is pretty dark shit. And you're talking about yeah. it like it's, you know, the narrator on Desperate Housewives and with right. plunky little music playing and like I I I found it to be a little arch. Right. Yeah. You know. Well, especially with your episode, your episode was much darker than these were I all grown-ups making bad brutal. calls, but he was yeah. raping this 12-year-old child like, "Oh my god." I have to say Amber, who was a participant in the episode, was kind of a remarkable woman. She seemed to mm. have, I don't know what her story was, but she seemed, by the time that we joined her, to have pulled her act together. Her husband yeah. was part of it. He seemed lovely. She was really, you know, I I hope, I guess there was a lot of therapy or recovery of some sort for her. Um, right. But they seem to have kind of gotten their act together because, yeah, she talked about having drifted into drugs as a way of mm. tamping down, you know, her feelings. In and after, once she was in the foster care system, she lost her family and she was abused that way by those crazy Mormons. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, it was it was an ironic sort of it was the the. The darkness of the story did not match up with uh, um, the tone of the piece. And right. it seemed a little focused on, like, get, you know, like it was like looking down our noses at them rather than seeing them with sympathy. 
I agree. I was I was suspecting, and it turns out I was completely wrong, that your episode was also going to confirm that this really this show ends up being one side of the story. It begins to, my episode. I don't know if you had this ended with if you've been wronged by your spouse or know someone who's been wronged by your spouse, get in touch with us. And we're like, what is this? The Ricky Lake show in the late nineties? Like, kind of yeah. had that quality. Yeah, like it was that yeah. same sort of. I thought I was inspired when you were talking about the uh, the press conference. I was thinking, like, I wish Dina had gone Jerry Springer on him and yeah. gone after <laughs> that him would be on amazing. the stage. But if yeah. Peter Peterman or Peterson or whatever his name was was telling the truth, then maybe she was fully aware. She was read in on it before they got up there. And this was just I, I, their cover story to get him out. And then, you know, the the... His lieutenant governor ended up crashing and burning, too. The lieutenant governor was blind, I think, and then mm, got mm-hmm. drummed out of office for... Um, and as you pointed out, this was the beginning of Chris Christie's political career, yeah, right? Chris the, Christie the other then, side really got yeah. a boost out of this because it was the whole administration crashed and burned. Wow. I, you know, I... I, I but it did bring to mind, and this is fodder for a whole nother episode, and I probably shouldn't be bringing it up right at the end of this one. But, you know, like, um, I, uh, the closet is a terrible thing, and I have great sympathy and compassion for people who struggle with their sexual identity. But if, if you are getting into a marriage um, to cover up and the other partner is not in on that, that's a really bad thing that you've done. And it's not glossed over or you know, made Yeah, the days history. of that being like a sympathetic yeah. choice are over. Like yeah, I you can saying, actually yeah. marry a man now or a woman. You can mm-hmm. marry somebody, a member of the same sex. So it right. is no longer cool. Yeah. You know, it is like no you, longer an acceptable thing that you were pressured into it. Well, and there's a difference between emotional and psychological survival during a time of profound systemic oppression. And I'm afraid I might make less money. We go through that here in Hollywood a lot. It's like big celebrities who can't come out of the closet because, you know, they just can't handle it. And it's like, yeah, I don't believe in outing people, but at the same time, I think you need to own the fact that the reason you're in the closet now is because you, you think you can get a slightly bigger paycheck yeah. oh, as yeah. opposed I, to you're going to end up in jail or institutionalized, which we used to be then, the option. And then once you've milked all of the money you can possibly get out of the system as it works to come out as yeah. your next career move, if you want yeah, me totally. to lose all respect for you, that really puts me off. Like I'm now yeah. publishing this book and I'm going to try and use this mm-hmm. to build a new audience and have a new comeback. It's like, yeah, where were you when we needed you? Yeah, totally. Particularly if you sat out the gay marriage fight, which was which was brutal. Yeah. But again, I think that's a whole nother episode. On our next episode, we're returning to the paranormal, Eric Shaw Quinn. Are we going to call this an episode of What Science? Is this going to be What Science Volume 5? It's been a while since we've done I a I think lot. it has to be. Science. I mean, okay. it's very much a follow-up. Well, we'll talk, we'll get into we'll it. Talk but about- yeah, it is, um, it is very we'll tell much you what, a keep, in keeping with that format. And we're going to tell you what we're doing. It's called The Curse of the Highgate Vampire. It's on Discovery Plus, our new favorite platform. But um, it is a single episode. It's not from a series. It is a special all to itself. And it is very, very special. I can, we can assure you it is yes. quite special. It's special. It's a special in quotes. <laughs> Air quotes. Italics. 
<laughs> Air quotes and italics. The Curse of the Highgate Vampire. That's in our next episode of TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.